to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. So in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 9 through 20 today. Um, and, and the title of this is Love and Life That Advance the Gospel. Because that's what Paul's going to be discussing here is this idea of um, his prayer for them that would, that would turn into this type of love that they would have for one another. And uh, not only the body of Christ, but for also for non-believers and so um, uh, how to live out the Christian life. That's what Paul's going to be praying for them. But then he's going to go into his own circumstances and discuss that and kind of reveal to them the type of love and the type of, the type of life that would truly not only glorify God, but would advance the gospel. Um, last week, we looked at uh, Paul's enjoyment of God and them as he talked about his prayer for them. And now this week, we're going to get to see those verses where he actually does this prayer for them and then uh, tells them about his um, circumstances. Um, he's building, Paul is building in this letter that, to that famous section that the most of us know. There's several parts in Philippians that have um, um, a famous, well-known, or maybe well-memorized uh, scriptures. But th- this main one that we'll hit first is that, that idea of, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, that, and that's a big one. That's an easy statement. It looks good on a bumper sticker. It looks good on coffee mugs, right? It, you're, you may have grown up in a house that had it in a plaque in a bathroom or something. Hey, well, somebody flip those lights on up there. Um, and so um, in, in this, he's building towards this. And this is a paradigm shift for most of us. Thank you. Um, but he's building to that idea in these three sections that we're going to cover today. And so in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see his prayer for them. Um, and then in verses 12 through 18, we're going to look at Paul's assessment and his perspective of, of the life that he's in, because he's going through some things that they don't know about, and he's wanting to inform them, and he's wanting to inform them uh, about a particular view from a God-centered perspective and a gospel-centered perspective. Um, so that's in verses 12 through 18. And then in 19 and 20, actually 19 and 20 build into 21 and next week's sermon, but it's connected there, and it's kind of this all that flows together, but 21 through 30, there is too much to cover connected to this. So that's why we're breaking that down. But it's also in verses 19 and 20, his future expectation, which is about deliverance. And it's interesting because his idea of deliverance is not what we usually think of. You know, I got a headache. God, we take this headache away. Uh, God, I've got some pain going on. God, I've got a coworker that's just difficult to deal with. Um, a situation with my kids. God, just remove this situation. Remove us from the situation. Deliverance out of that. And, and that's not exactly what Paul's praying. So we'll see this. Um, and so as a teaser, I, I wanted to just throw that out there for you to think through. Just to kind of think through this week. If you were to state this statement, um, for me... To live is fill in the blank. For me, to live is, and you get to fill in the blank. Because the reality is, you're filling in the blank, whether we realize it or not. And so, 
a lot of us inside the church would, you know, in the church building on Sunday might say Sunday school answer, of course, Jesus. For me to live is Jesus. And then you've all been around those people like, like they don't even know, like they wouldn't recognize Jesus, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a, a room with only Jesus in the room. And so they, they, no one would say that they follow Christ, they identify with Christ the rest of the week. But for you, what is that? For me to live is fill in the blank. Um, it can be all kinds of things. Um, I've, I've been reading a lot on idolatry from some different guys. And so, uh, man, it, think, if you begin to think through that, what you fill in that blank with could easily be something that, that is, is creeping up there in value to your heart. And it, it may, you may not state it that way, but man, all of your time, all your strategizing and thinking, if I just do this, we can get that. If I just do this and this and this, if this year, if we just do this, and some things are hell, some things are fine. Like, hey, you know what? I need to drop 40 pounds. If we do these things, you know, eat better, plan our meals, uh, do meal planning, uh, do those things, and we need to drop 40 pounds, that, that, that's all right. If it becomes this thing where when two people compliment you, and now, oh my gosh, everyone thinks I'm losing weight. Everyone thinks I'm beautiful. Everyone thinks I'm so attractive. Everyone's noticing that I'm working out. And I'm going to start doing this and that, and now I'm doing more planning. And now four hours on Sunday, four hours on Monday, you're spending on just planning and strategizing. You got a little God going on, and it's you, and it feels really good. And, and, and people are noticing. And so, so you're getting the ding, ding, ding reward, and, and then that's an idol if you're not careful. It could be anything. It could be your business. It could be um, your finances. It could be your children, your children's success. That, that's a huge God around this area. I remember before we had, we were out in Bigsby out there, 151st Street, and this parent, we'd been around, it was already crazy. And then this parent goes, do you guys play at Titan? And I was like, no. He's like, Have you, do you know what Titan is? You know, it's the Titan Sports Complex, probably you know, a mile and a half from here. And, and I was like, no, I haven't been at Titan. And he looked at me like I, like I didn't live on the earth. He was like, you haven't been at Titan? What do you guys do? Like, I mean, like, what, what do you do with your weekends? And then I went out there, and it is just, I mean, it's just an incredible place, but uh, it, it can foster that thing of my kids' success on a, a basketball court or football field or soccer field or whatever. That reflects on me. That reflects on me as a parent. Um, and so, like, that, that can be idolatrous very easily. My kids' success in academics or sports or even their moral behavior, whatever, that can reflect on me. It can be an idol. And so for me to live is fill in the blank. Think through that this week. Uh, I want to tell a little story as we get into this. This was from one of my professors. He's probably one of the most influential professors in my 10 years at Southern Seminary, um, Dr. Greg Allison. He's written several things, but he was also very instrumental as we were going through some different situations in a church back in uh, one of our former churches where um, uh, the lead pastor was going through a really difficult situation and the, uh, our, our pastoral staff and then the elders were trying to address some of those things and not knowing exactly what to do. And so uh, Dr. Allison, uh, he has usually helped churches in that situation. Um, some big, well, if I said some names of some churches that you probably have known, or sometimes if it's a scandal or some bad situation that's happened, sometimes Dr. Allison gets called in as an external counsel. And so he, he's in this class with us. We've been going through over a year of a difficult situation. Uh, and so we're going through a really, really tough time every single week um, and it, our pastoral staff. And there's this, this situation with this lead pastor. And now a lot of us have seen some of those situations that are kind of, uh, you've, you've worked in places where there's a, a kind of a toxic environment. And if the leadership uh, above you is abusive and all these things and manipulative and, and, and power greedy and, and like all these things, and uh, it can be very difficult on the, the, the group working. And so Dr. Allison in this class, 
separated from my own context, starts telling this story. And this is a story where he helped a church. So it's a new pastor of this church. It's an existing church. And the pastor knew as he come in, he's been there about three or four months. And he's kind of, you know, it's nice. And after you get there three or four months, guess what? After you have dinner with people, then you can start finding out that, well, that's kind of interesting. We we don't know what's going on, but you're the fourth guy we've had here in the last, you know, like 15 months or, you know, like maybe uh, 15, 18 months. And so like, that's kind of like, you know, little yellow check mark, like keep an eye on that. It went through, I'm the fourth guy. After he's there another month or so, he learns that, um, I think it was the, I forget what position these people were in. I think it was a woman who was the assistant worship leader who was always on the stage, a very uh, wonderful worship leader. She was in an affair with a, a, a deacon that was a very a small group leader and was kind of over the small groups. And so very much in leadership, had a whole group of people and also was over several small group areas. And so very visible leaders and everything like that. And so he learns that they're in an adulterous relationship. So what do you do? It's your fourth month on. He calls the guy that's closest to him since he's been there four months, the one of the elders who was on the search team and everything and says, hey, I, I just want to let you know that um, we've got a situation man, I didn't want to deal with this in the first five years here, much less the first four months. But did you know that so-and-so on the worship team, she's in an affair with our deacon, what's his name? And to his surprise, the the elder said, yeah, there's a handful of us that know about this. And so then he's like, oh, (laughs) okay. And so immediately he's like, well, what, you know, what do we need to do? And he's like, well, here's the difficulty. Um, You know, Bob, and that's a made-up name, but Bob is on the elder board with us. You know, that deacon, that's his nephew. So it's kind of got brought up a couple times in the past, but Bob, you know, he, he can kind of be very outspoken, very opinionated, very strong, and kind of, kind of, without saying it, kind of bullies that elder group. So now that pastor hangs up the phone, he's, he's got some decisions to make. So what do we do here? So as he's telling this story, as, as, as Dr. Allison's telling the story, remember the context I'm in. And so I'm like wanting to jump up on the table, like confront it, confront it, like right now, like bring everyone, you know, like a special, like as I was going, we have to deal with this sin. We have to deal with this sin. We have to deal with this sin because I was in a particular case where uh, there was uh, some abusive situations going on and everyone was kind of like, well, well, let's just, let's wait. Well, it's been nine months. It's been 11 months. It's been 15 months. It's been, you know, two years. And, and like, we don't know what to do. We don't know. So we're not going to do anything. So I'm just like, oh my gosh. So Dr. Allison threw that question out. So what do you guys do? And you should have saw it turned into like just missiles firing, like all of it, all different perspectives. And no one, no one was going like, we just don't do anything. But um, he said, well, what if, so we talked for 30 minutes. Well, then it turns into, well, I was brought in as an outside counsel. And I said, wait. He's like, find out some more. Be patient. I don't mean wait a year, wait two years. He's like, start having lunches with people. So um, he said, a couple of things can happen here. With your elders, what's going on there is either they, they don't know what the Bible tells them to do. That They know that this is sin, right? They're not saying, and there, there, could, there could be places that just go, well, just let it go on. She's really hot or something. You're like, so just let the guy have fun. And no, that, no, this is clear sin, right? And so there's probably some places like that, but they knew it was, they just didn't know what approach to take, right? So they don't know what to do, or they do know what to do, but they're fearful. Remember Bob, the elder, the, the kind of abusive guy or power guy? So he starts talking with more people, and so he gathers more information, and, and sure enough, there's only a little bit of people that know. 
So it's not widespread, but you've got cancer in the body, right? You've got cancer going on in the body. So then he starts talking some more and he starts learning some more information. And, and, and now you've got a, a church that's needing for health to take place, the corporate body, for there to be biblical leadership. So what Dr. Allison advises and counsels him to do is to shore up this eldership. Because to, be, to, to, to address the corporate body for the health of that corporate body and for them to flourish in the future, you need a biblical leadership. So he said, hey, start finding little bitty things within the church, little, sometimes silly stuff even. Get your elders together and go, hey, we, we, here, here's a situation that's happening in our church. It's really small, guys. Let's learn to do this. Let's take our Bible. Let's go see what the Bible says about it. Let's pray about it as a group here. And then let's take some biblical steps. Find the next situation. Go to our Bible, pray about it, take some biblical steps. So they do that with three, five, 10, 15 little situations, some a little bit deeper. He'll notice in that process that Bob sometimes would kind of be outspoken. Bob would kind of have a very strong opinion, would always kind of, kind of like I said, kind of bully the group, you know, not make threats or anything, but he would kind of do that. And again, I'm sitting there in this class, listen, I'm still going, I'm still like not with the patience thing. I was like, we've been patient, like something needs to happen. Like, you know, like you need to confront this. And so he says, well, then after some time, after you've done that 15 times, these elders are kind of not in a prideful way, but like, like we know what to do now as elders. And so then he goes, hey, guys, found out a new one. I don't know if you guys knew. We got an affair going on with a lady in our church and one of our deacons. And, of course, a couple of the guys know. And he said, what do we do, guys? Let's go to the scriptures. Let's pray. And let's take action. Not kill them, get them out of here. What needs to happen with their soul? But also we've got to think of the corporate body. We need to love them and show the same forgiveness, grace, mercy of Jesus Christ as, as, as a shepherd, no matter how bad they've blown it, no matter how visible they are. If you're disgusted by them, you've got a wrong heart. If you're disgusted by sin, you've got a right heart, and you go, the most loving thing I want to do is approach them in love and grace and forgiveness, but, but we point them to for repentance, and we want to hold them to repentance. It's not like, hey, we, we know you did that, and so just keep going, but, but he, he, they said, let's go through that. Well, guess what Bob does? Uh-uh. That's my nephew. You, I'm, I'm successful. Businessman. Deep pockets. Got a lot. And now guess what? You got four or five elders who now have a biblical backbone that go, hey, Bob, we, very gently, Bob, we've learned. We go to the Bible. We pray. We lovingly take action. That, that's the, the place that we want to be. We're not, well, this isn't being unloving, Bob. This isn't being unchristlike. But we want to be biblical. And we're all together on this. Do you see what happened there? So now you've got a, a corporate body who has a chance of surviving. We can confront this situation with this leader lovingly, this guy who's kind of protecting it. And so all along, the reason that those other three pastors have been fired, they found out also about the situation. And when they brought it up, Bob had them fired. So we're going to see this. The reason I bring this up is, do you see the picture there? It's not, it is the right thing to do to confront that. But the way that we do that um, in a corporate body, for the sake of the corporate body, for the wellness and the flourishing, to help people, to show people grace, um, it, it, it's a beautiful picture here that Paul prays for them. So I wanted to tell that story. Let's read now Philippians 1, and I hope that you're going to be able to see what I'm talking about there. Um, it's a beautiful picture of um, that story shows 
We're, we're supposed to be loving each other, even when we sin against each other. Even when there's sin situations going on, the most gracious thing we can do is say, we're not kicking you out like, get out. But if you're saying you're not going to repent and that, that you know, this doesn't matter, you're not understanding. But we, we want to approach you in love. We want to give time and patience. Now, a case like that, it's like, no, we're not giving you six months on this one. We're, we're, we're stopping this now, right? But if it's something else, like, hey, you're really struggling with the, this habit that you have, you know, that's not so, so, so dire, like it may take three, four, five months, right? But we're going to walk with you, counsel with you, meet with you regularly, and we're going to love you. You're, you're not this thing that we're disgusted by and we can't stand out. We want to have this place where you, you can even talk about your sin. So um, let's look in verses, we're going to go 9 through um, 20. And he says, so that, I'm sorry, yeah, 9. I was starting at 10. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that's the second time he's already mentioned the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, they claim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with the full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Father, we, we pray that you would um, allow us to be a people who receive this word the same way that the Philippian church received these words from you and penned by the, the authoring of Paul through the Holy Spirit, that we would become this type of place, that it wouldn't be just um, uh, values and words stuck on a wall, on a plaque, or on a, a, a billboard, but that we would learn to love in this manner. And that we'd also learn about the, the type of suffering that Paul has gone through and that we would see that we can still glorify Christ in the middle of difficult and, and uncertain times. We, these apply to us so much now as the church uh, has such a reputation, Father, uh, of being just a fighting, attacking thing or a judgmental, um, mean thing or, or sometimes labeled as things that we're not even close to when we're actually trying to be loving. And yet, Father, if we can have the grace of Christ and the truth of Christ um, through the Spirit, would you use that not only for, for us internally, our corporate body, but also for the people around us that need the clarity of the gospel, that need Christ as their Savior? In your name we pray, amen. So, um, as we look at this, um, you can see that, that the first thing there um, is Paul's prayer, um, that's of verses 9 through 11. And so he says, here's my prayer. It's love. 
His main point is just love. Now, this is that word agape. So if you've been in the church, you've probably heard that there's three different Greek words used for um, love. And so um, there's the uh, um, eros, um, and that's more of the uh, sexual intimacy. That's the romantic love. So eros type love would be that that you would have with this spouse. And that's a good thing. That's not an evil thing. Now, uh, of course, with, with teens and children, you're telling them, no, this is not for you right now, right? Once God brings this person to your life, this is a beautiful thing. This eros type romantic, um, intimate love, physical even. And, and God is not ashamed of that. God is not like, oh man, I created this. I made a mistake and they're, they're enjoying uh, these sexual intimacies and all these things. That's no, and we don't want to be a church or, or parents that, that teach our kids. It's bad, bad, evil, 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 bad, bad, bad. And then they, I've counseled a lot, a lot, a lot of 20 somethings that get into marriage and are like, yeah, just physically and sexually, like my parents just made it such an evil thing. It was so bad. It's so bad. It's so bad that now in marriage, it's all, it's just, we don't even know how to relate to one another. And so it, we want to say, this is a beautiful thing. God, God, God isn't ashamed of it, but it has to be um, like a fire. You don't set a fire in the middle of your living room, do you? There's a place for it in, 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 on the stove or in, in the fireplace. And it could be burning powerfully, but that's in its right place, the way it's designed. And that's that eros type love. Philos is the second one, and that's this brotherly love. So Philadelphia, the city, so Philadelphia, the same thing. Um, some people uh, misunderstand that, and they, they, they think that love is just, just about feelings. Well, God has designed in that, and this philos is the, the brotherly type love. And it's also across all kinds of different people. Everyone's saying, hey, it doesn't matter what we look like, what I do for a living, what I make, where I live. If we have this type of love from God... And this is specifically speaking to the church, saying this is available in Christ Jesus, that we can love one another in the same way, that God will help us to have love for one another, even though our culture is telling us, no, you don't fit together. Even though your cultural, cultural saying, you guys have nothing in common, you shouldn't even talk to each other. You should be against each other. And man, do we fall for it politically? Do we fall for it media-wise? Our phones, our, our devices are pinging all the time. We've learned that these algorithms are set to divide us because we're drawn to it. it. It sets little things off in our head instead of going, hey, no, you know what? I'm not believing that. I believe God has a love for us, fill us, where we can love one another beyond all these differences. And so then the third one is the agape love. It's the sacrificial love of God, where God poured out his love, slaughtering his son, going, I'm willing to do this, this incredible um, sacrificial thing. And so it's deeper than those other. It's the deepest type of, it's the highest form of love. So John 3.16, for God so agape, he so loved the world. It's not the brotherly type. It's not the sexual intimacy type. It is the type of generous outpouring of just beautiful sacrificial love. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? You know that one. Um, John 13, 34, Jesus is about to leave and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And that one's agape, agapao. And so agapeo, and so um, I, I forget the ending on it, but it's uh, the same word agape um, that is um, saying it's, it's agape love, that you should love one another with that type of love. Just as I have loved agape you, um, you also should love agape one another. So beautiful picture there. Um, so notice what Paul says. It, 
this type of love. I'm praying that it would be this type of love, this agape love that would uh, abound. And that's this picture of just over and over, like waves of an ocean that just never stop. They're just continually coming. They just never stop. And so um, it's an ongoing, growing love. Um, so a great question is uh, for you is just think through this. Is your love for the people sitting in this room, just, just even in this room, is your love for the people sitting in this room growing at an ever-increasing, deeper level of care and compassion? Now, let's just be honest. That's not what churches on their websites are selling, is it? Our hearts also. It is, it's more difficult to come to a place like this where you actually have to shake hands and talk to people versus walk into a place with 500 or 1,000. Those places aren't wrong or bad. Just know it's really easy to walk in like, hey, you know, find that back row, shake up people's hands, smile, you know, even though if you've been fighting the whole time to get to church and then just stand there, sing the songs and maybe the songs are real great. And you're like, oh, I got to sit through this sermon and then we're out of here real quick. And so that is not at all to do with this type of participation in the gospel, is it? This is not at all the type of love that this is talking about. This is not at all a type of growing love where I'm spending time with you, where I'm learning about your situations. I, I care and I'm curious about what's going on in your life and I will step up in action. And so that's the type of love that this is. It's ongoing, but it's growing. It's also informed and effective. Notice it says this, with knowledge and all discernment. So that knowledge is, is a biblical understanding. And so it's not just knowledge points. Some of us have been around people where they measure spirituality by how much you know. So remember the old head, heart, feet? Some people measure a good Christian is um, the person who's really, really busy, the feet. They're just busy, evangelism. They're going out there serving, they're doing all this stuff. Now, are they very loving to you? No, not at all. Don't get in their way. They're just busy, busy, busy. Um, and also, do they really know a lot of scripture? Do they know God's word very well? Not at all, because they're just busy, busy. So they're the feet. The heart person is, I measure uh, Christianity and your spirituality by how loving you are. If you're just this person, just like a teddy bear, and so if you're that evangelism, so busy, just serving, serving, or if you're this person that's studying God's word, like, man, you are both, you missed it. You're, you're not loving. You need to be a heart person is what they would say. And then the head knowledge person is like, they, they just want to lock themselves away. They can quote the Greek. They can, they study the word. They're, they're, you know, telling you about their two hour quiet time every single morning. You're like, man, I'm struggling with like two minutes every other day. And, and like you're doing two hours and you're quoting all these verses. And so they measure their spirituality by head knowledge. This is not talking about that kind of head knowledge. We, we need to be aware of which one of those we fit into and then be aware of the weaknesses that go along with that. And so this is saying a knowledge of God's will and a knowledge of the law of love. Because remember, this is new. Jesus had just come, hit the stage, and they're saying, hey, it's not by all the Jewish um, laws of the Old Testament. So it's not knowledge of the laws. And again, I throw out to you, hey, when you sin, is it because you don't know? It's not usually it, is it? Like, there's something going like, ding, ding, ding. No, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you're like, ding, 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 ding. You usually know, right? It's not like, I just didn't know. Now, if it, 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 there, I think we sin every day probably by, you know, great commandment, like um, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, you know, that's a tough one. Thankfully, Jesus did that fully because we're probably never going to hit that 100%, right? But there, a lot of our sin is, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's, we know what we should do and we shouldn't do, but we still do it. And so um, it, this knowledge is a law of love, not just the rules. And it's not just speaking about head lodge. So let's apply this and this spiritual discernment to that situation I talked about with Dr. Allison. Do you see the difference between if, if a person was just, just head knowledge? 
what? There's, there's this affair going on? Just immediately step in. Uh, that guy's out of the church. She's out of the church. Those families, the three or four or five families are close to her. Four or five families are close to them. They don't know what's going on. So Dr. Allison said, hey, a loving thing to do for the corporate body. Man, these people are just, they're, they're nice folks. They're, they're, they're spending their time. They're sacrificing. They're loving one another. You don't want them to be called into this huge situation. Let's deal with this in a correct way, but get a biblical leadership together that knows how to take the little steps of, of deeper love and, and care for those individuals, shepherding those souls, but also taking care in a loving way of the corporate body. Um, so this whole section right here is actually too corporate. We, we take all these things uh, very individualist, individualistically, but this is speaking to the corporate body. And so it's this law of love. Um, Some of you are going to get really, really weird here in the next few years. With all the AI things, um, we're going to be invited over to your house, and some of you are just going to get weird, and you're going to have this little AI robo-dog, okay? And we're going to come over. We're, we're not wanting to pet or play with or have your little robo-dog talk to us, and, and you're going to get weird, and, and you're going to have people come over, and you're going to, it's going to be able to do all these tricks, and you're, you know, for 15 minutes, you're going to be like, hey, watch this, roll over. Hey, jump up now. Hey, bark. And it's going to be able to obey and obey, and it's going to do all these cool things, and it's going to be able to obey every single thing with perfection but it's never going to be able to love you do you get that if god wanted robots he could have created robots easily like because we're not surprising him by creating robots right and so he didn't want robots he wanted people who are amazed at who he is even even without the cross even if it was like this, think through, think through it like this. If there was no Jesus and no chance of forgiveness and you were just in your sins and there was a hell to go to, he's still beautiful and God like, man, I'm, I, if I'm going to hell and I, I'm in the middle of sin and everything, man, that's still an incredible God if he created every blade of grass, the beautiful ocean, the beautiful mountains, the beautiful sky, the expanses, the things they're discovering those in, in the depths of the ocean, the things they're discovering in the sky. If there was no salvation even, that's an incredible God, even if you couldn't have him, right? Like, that's the kind of God we serve. And he goes, hey, I'm opening the door for you. That's how beautiful I am. I, I'm not keeping this from you. And all those things are, are like uh, 1,000th place because I'm the first place thing. You're going to realize in heaven that I'm the reward, and I open the door. So when we think through um, this God who's saying, I didn't make robots. I want you to love me just for who I am and for what I've done for you, for what I've sacrificed for you. That's the gospel. That's what calls us every week to that. And so this God is saying, I didn't create robots who couldn't love. I wanted you to love. And I want your obedience to flow out of that love, not you obeying um, without any kind of love. You've missed the gospel there. So he's telling these Philippian believers and, and sojourn believers, um, I could have made robots, but I want you to learn and experience my love in the gospel and learn the sacrificial path of this agape love. Um, another question would be, what informs and directs your actions and words, thinking through this agape type love? When situations arise in your week, could be with your children, could be with your spouse, could be with your coworkers, could be with family members. Does agape love control and direct? Or does what you read on Pinterest? Or what TikTok has been telling you, or just your own personality. Like, I've been saved, but I'm, I'm just this type of person. I, I'm going to tell them how it is. I, and I just don't like, is, is Christ not changing that? We see that repeatedly, where people just hold on to parts of their, uh, I was always angry beforehand. I, I still get to be angry. I'm going to heaven. 
He's like, God, I think Jesus wants to change that, right? Uh, and so what's guiding and directing your actions and your words? Because this is guided and directed. There, there's discernment, spiritual discernment, and there's knowledge about the law of love in this. Um, so it's a beautiful picture there that Paul's saying, this is the type of love that I want for you. And then he, he switches gears here and goes from, that's what I want for this church. That's what I'm praying and notice, that's a God-centered prayer where he's praying that. Well, then he goes into, let me tell you about what's going on. And the reason that he goes into this uh, is he's, he wants them to see what's, what's uh, uh, excellent. And what he means there by excellent um, in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. The word excellent there is not talking about good things versus evil things. It's talking about in, in, a, in, a, in a spectrum of 10 good things that can happen, I want you to be wise and have spiritual discernment on what's the best way to handle that. So again, applying that to that situation I brought up with Dr. Allison, my professor in that church, there, there, there's 10 different ways to handle it, and they may all be okay, and they may all be biblical, and they all, may all be right, but there may be a better way to handle that. You make those kind of decisions all the time, right? And our, when we hold off, someone does something wrong to us, and we want to fire back at them, but like we, we hold off. We do what's excellent there. So that's what that word means. Um, and he says the, the things there that, that are excellent, and also um, what he says, I want you to be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. We're always striving for, for purity. He wants us to be pure on the day of Christ. He wants us to be blameless on the day of Christ. We need to understand, though, that you cannot be blameless on your own. You cannot be pure completely on your own. It is brought up by the gospel. So if you, if you look further in that sentence, it says, I want you to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. We know that now I've got this fruit, this thing that's finalized, this, this uh, um, end capacity of fruit of righteousness, and we know that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And, and so it's coming from Christ. It's through the Spirit. And it says that comes through Jesus Christ, which leads to the glory and praise of God. And so it's this righteousness, not on how good I'm doing Christianity. It's actually how much I'm dependent upon the Spirit and, and, and through prayer and, and asking the Lord. I'm seeking purity and seeking blamelessness through Christ. Uh, someone does something that offends me, I want to just you know, punch them back or say something back. No, no, no. I have righteousness from Christ, forgiveness that I don't feel like I have towards them. Jesus, I need the forgiveness that you gave me. Can I have some overflow for them? The righteousness that I don't feel like I have for them, I need to have that righteousness. I need to borrow that spirit. Would you help me? I want to respond this way. Hey, I want to walk in the spirit. Spirit, would you help me to change where you're forgiving and accepting of what they've done and forgiveness to that and, 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 and then being a person who's very gracious with them. That's the way that that looks. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful prayer that he has for them. And then he turns to this, and notice one more thing is none of that's going to happen where the church is actually pure and blameless. It's never going to happen. And as, as holy and good and as, as careful as we are with our morals, the day of Christ is when in an instant— Remember that those verses talk about in an instant you're going to be changed. The perishable body, this flesh body, is changed to the imperishable. Righteousness of Christ applied. No more sin, no more crying, no those things. That is on the day of Christ. It's not going to happen before then. So there are some eschatologies, end times beliefs that people are believing that if we get um, legalistic enough, if we get tight enough, we can make all that happen on the earth, a righteousness that happens on the earth. And that's just not, that's not accurate with biblical. That's kind of doing away with what, what did Jesus come for? So um, think through that if, you're, if you've heard some of those guys. Now let's, let's, let's think through 
this switch that Paul goes into 12 through 18, Paul knew that they were very, very concerned with him. So he switches from this prayer, and then he just goes into this, and this is building into that, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so he, he goes now, hey, I know that you Philippian church have been very, very concerned with me. So they had sent Epaphroditus um, from their church. He had taken a, a couple of months to get there. In that process, he almost dies. He makes it to Paul, tells them, hey, tells Paul and his crew, hey, I know you guys are imprisoned and it's for Christ, but the Philippian poor church, they sacrificed and gave this money for you guys. So y'all can have some food, you can have some supplies and stuff. Um, and he almost dies. Well, he gets well, and then Paul says, man, I see how concerned that you guys were for me and how all these rich churches around, they haven't given anything. In chapter four, he says this. But this, this little small weak thing, this Philippian church, they gave out of their sacrifice, out, out of nothing they gave. And so what a beautiful picture. And so he wants them to know, here's what's happened. But notice, he doesn't just go into a whole list of, here's all the horrible things I've done. He rewrites what has happened and leaves out the details of his persecutions, his beatings, his shipwreck. And he says, actually, let's read there in verse uh, 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, all of these horrible things that he leaves out, it's actually served to advance the gospel. So think through that. He doesn't go into all the details of that. Instead says, all the things that have happened to me have served to advance the gospel. Do you ever get in those pity party times when, when you, you just, you're looking at all the circumstances and maybe the three or four people around you, just everything they're doing is falling, into, falling backwards into just tons of money, falling backwards into just everything they touch turns to gold. Everything's working out relationally with them. Everything's working out financially with them. Everything's working out socially with them. Everything's working out in their marriage with their kids. And, and you may be sitting there going, what is going on? Like, oh, God, I'm trying. I'm trying. Notice that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's going, hey, hey, some things have happened. Some spiritual attacks happened. Some things are happening in my life. I'm being persecuted different ways. But those things are serving to advance the gospel. As he's in prison, what ha look what happens here. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That was 9,000 of the highest guards of Caesar. So remember, they're in Rome. So you got Caesar, 9,000 of the imperial. That was the elite. So that's like the army rangers or the navy seals. That all 9,000 have heard, hey, why is this Paul guy here? That there's a big following of this Paul guy. Why is he here? It's not because of Caesar. It's not because of the Romans. It's not because of the Jews. He says, it's because of Christ. They all know I'm here because of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that, that's a flipping thinking. Again, put that on your website. You know, any website you put in the church, what is it? It's the pictures of all the hands up, the beautiful, you know, the beautiful worship screen, uh, the beautiful worship team, and all that stuff. You don't have a picture of a guy in a, in a jail cell you know, crippled, broken down, going, man, as long as the gospel's going forward. That, that just doesn't sell, does it? Like, that wouldn't grow a church in America right now, right? Um, his thing is that the gospel is advancing. And, and notice in verses 15 there, it says, some, indeed, he, he's going to talk about what some of this persecution and difficulty is. It says, some in, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others are doing it from goodwill. So the latter, the ones doing it from goodwill, so I've got a slide up there that shows the breakdown of that. It says, uh, the latter, uh, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here in the defense of the gospel, that I've been put here because of my um, participation in the gospel, following Christ has led to this. But others, the former, they claim Christ out of selfish ambition, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
So the deal is, if we bring up this gospel and stuff, and we bring it up a lot, Paul's getting punished more. And we can rile up the Romans saying, hey, I don't know, you better watch out for this Paul guy. Uh, he keeps talking about Jesus, and so they're preaching Christ. But then it's riling up Jewish leaders in the Roman provinces. So what's happening there? It's the same thing that happened with Christ. The Jewish leaders were kind of flipping out. And they're, they're saying, hey, Rome, you got a problem. Rome's going, we don't want to deal with this Jewish sect, and especially this guy who's causing problems like the Jesus guy did before. So that they're, when they do it, they're proclaiming Christ out of rivalry. And they also have noticed the following, the popularity of Christ. And he's saying that's not happening. And so um, the ones that do it out of love for him, in both of those cases, he's saying that's great. And I rejoice in that because Christ is being proclaimed. Um, notice this. If Christ is being proclaimed, Paul's saying that's great, even if it gets worse for me personally. Even if it costs me more. So think through this. How will you handle it if the cost of following Christ moves to a much greater cost? So think through that. How will you follow Christ if the cost of following Christ gets much greater? If it were really getting to the point of getting worse for you and your family. If it were really costly. Um, so a couple scenarios. First of all, we already had, there's already this diminish, diminishing participation in the gospel. There was a lot of fallout of the church, right? A lot of people just started exiting the church. I've been talking that for a long time. Um, in the U.S., it was already dwindling numbers and much fallout. Then the global pandemic hit, and then 30 months of ripple effects in all kinds of ways, right? Um, Supply chains, costs of supplies, government upheaval, cultural upheaval, uh, financial recession, scandals in, in trust institutions, and then there's more lack of participation. How will you handle it if the cost of following Christ moves to greater cost? So the first thing that happens is there's already people dropping out, and then a pandemic hits. Now we've got excuses not to come there. And so what happens if, if the next step comes? So religious liberties are cut. Sometimes that's that's sometimes some parts of the church that's all they're listening to is the, is that that huge fear 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 all that like that's every single day is just they're doing this they're doing this so there's there's realities in some of those things it's not the focal point um, how will you handle if actual persecution comes where when the church is just calling sin sin and now that's categorized as hate speech like illegal hate speech if you're going to talk about the Bible and say, here's what marriage needs to look like. Here's what sin is from this Bible. We're going to shut you down. If 40 to 50 million people left the church due to convenience and comfort and ease, what would happen if things change culturally, politically? Your job, well, you can't have those beliefs and work here. You can't meet if you're going to talk about those things and categorize things like that. If you're going to talk about the exclusivity in Christ, meaning that only through Jesus can people go to heaven, well, you have to shut down. That's illegal. You're the problem. What will happen then? So that's what Paul's talking about. Like It's costing me personally, but you know what? Christ is proclaimed, and I rejoice in that. The difficulty in our situation is it's not just two cases now, we've got this third type of dangerous motivation. I've got another slide there. Where the forms of the false gospel that are being proclaimed. Um, 
they mention Jesus, but they modify Jesus. Um, it's a Christless Christianity where you can have false belief, but you believe in God, but you're not obeying God. You're not living a life of repentance and faith, but you say, I believe in God. We're surrounded by it. Again, I, I would maybe rudely to you, but say that one out of 10 people in Tulsa, in Tulsa, Bible Belt Central, one out of 10 probably have true saving faith. That's not being mean. That's going, when you define what is salvation, what does that look like? Um, and so Paul's assessment of his own loss is the gospel will still advance. Now, if that scares you, we talk about persecution. What if these things happen? I'm not trying to be a doomsday person. I, I'm, just, I'm just reminding you that, that America, we don't have a special deal with God. Um, there's been phenomenal countries. Look at Europe 40, 50 years ago. Now it's dominated by Islam. It's dominated by, by Muslim faith. So just know that their, their rights were slowly, slowly, slowly taken away to where now that's happened. It's happened over and over in Africa. Different things that have happened over, over a century. So just know that it, I'm not trying to be a doomsday. I'm just saying that we don't have a special deal with God. Um, God has been very gracious to our country, but we need to think through, where's my faith going to be? Where's my kid's faith going to be when maybe churches don't look like it did for the last 50, 60, 70 years? And I would encourage you to think through that as you're teaching your kids those things. Paul ends it, and this just builds in the next week. So um, uh, he ends it by just saying, I'm going to rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed. Because I know that through your prayers and the help, again, of the Spirit of Jesus, it's going to turn out for my deliverance. But notice what he says about his deliverance. He doesn't mean that I'm going to be taken away and everything's going to be just great. I'm going to get released. He says, whether that's my life or death, whether I die on a Roman cross like my Savior did, or whether I go on for more life, um, I'm going to be faithful with my, my life. He says, um, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with the full courage now, as always, Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Um, his expectation was, I'm going to be faithful to Christ. So again, thinking through, um, where, where is your heart at? If, if you've been on this easy um, just kind of uh, sliding scale of, of well, I, you know, I, I'm trying, I'm trying. Maybe we need to be a little more serious. Maybe we need to be a little more serious and, and spiritually giving effort towards our faith, towards uh, the people around us. Paul gives us a definition of that in those first verses, that type of love. So I hope we can see from Paul's message that this type of love and this type of life, this perspective in response to circumstances can still serve to advance the gospel. Um, I, I pray that, when, that things go phenomenal, that churches keep expanding, and that we don't have persecution. I pray that we have leaders where there's a revival type thing. That, that's always a prayer. Um, I just know that some of my heroes prayed and prayed and prayed and worked and worked and labored and labored, and their churches did, and not huge revival came. They, they were a remnant, like Israel. There was a remnant of true believers in, in a culture surrounding them that was lost. And so uh, I just know that that's a lot of the gospel seed, and that's a lot of the gospel story. Um, and so faithfulness in the middle of that. So what does faithfulness look like to you? And the walkaways, kind of the, what do we walk away with? Is your love for people sitting in this room growing? Is it that agape type growing, abounding love, ever increasing? Um, are you learning about people in our body? 
and truly caring about them. I asked last week, do you pray for just our people, just this small group of people on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Are, are you praying for our people? It's easy to do. We've got a small group. What informs and directs your actions? Is it a biblical law of love, that kind of knowledge and spiritual discernment when it comes to your words and your actions? Um, has God's sacrificial love of the gospel and what he's done with Christ, is, is that what helps inform your decisions and directs you? How do your immediate circumstances affect your gospel perspective? Are you changing um, to more participation in the gospel or less? Are you seeing growth and transformation where you're more involved in gospel participation in your own heart and with others? And then how will you handle the cost in following Christ if it gets much more difficult? Um, and that last one there, does your future expectation affect your faithfulness to Christ? What are you faithful to? Remember that question at the beginning. For me to live is fill in the blank. Is it Christ, his church, Christ's mission? Because you're giving your life to something. For me to live is fill in the blank. You're spending your hours each week proving that's what you're living for. So we have a chance to go, Lord, we want to be a people found faithful, a faithful gospel presence. This type of love, ongoing, growing love. So as Brad comes up, I want to give you a moment to pray. We're going to do our closing song, and then Tyler's going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Think through those things. Examine your heart as we do each time that we go to the Lord's Supper. Um, we really have an opportunity to be that type of people, that type of church, um, in the places where we live and work and play, and just the people that are right in front of us. Um, that are right in our body. So a great opportunity. Let me pray for us.